This is They Create Worlds, episode 189, The Simulations of Will Wright. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. I've had a lot of fun building my city and destroying my city and rebuilding my city, but I think now I need to relax, kick back, and do what every person who enjoys playing video games does, torture simulated people by locking them in the room and then showing all the other little virtual people what fate will eventually befall them. Yes, that sounds like a very healthy habit you have there, Jeffrey. I'm sure that is all just fine. But yes, we are continuing our look at all of the simulators of that genius computer game designer Will Wright, the city simulators, the saw simulators, all the simulators in between. Truck simulator, goat simulator, farming simulator. Hmm, maybe not all the simulators, but certainly all those simulators created by one Mr. Will Wright. When we last left our hero... SimCity had just been released to wide acclaim, and I do mean wide acclaim, at a time when computer games were still beneath the literati of the world. Notable outlets like the New York Times and Time Magazine were giving it absolutely rave reviews. It was even getting attention within uh, the halls of power. There were corporations that were suddenly interested in having Maxis do simulations for them. There were cities, nonprofits, all sorts of organizations that were now interested. This really put Maxis and by extension Will Wright on the map. We're not going to talk about a lot of that because this is not a history of Maxis. We are not doing a history of Maxis, and it would be premature, because my friend Phil Salvador is currently writing a book on the history of Maxis, and any attempt to do that company justice before he has a chance to put that book out would just not make any kind of sense at all. We would have to issue a new episode with new corrections and probably apologize to a lot of people. (laughs) Right. However, we can continue with our look at Will Wright and his games and his inspiration, which is what we will do. Of course, SimCity is a big deal, as we said. It's gathering a lot of attention. So the question is where to go from here? A lot of game designers, uh, certainly a lot of game companies and game executives would say sequel, because that's what you do when you have a hit game. You do a sequel. Why stop at Diablo 1 when you can have Diablo 2? Why stop at Super Mario Brothers when you can have Super Mario World? And those other things in between. But Alex, I thought Diablo 1 had an expansion called Hellfire, which was a wonderful addition to the game and brought hours and hours of entertainment. That is incorrect. I don't know where you get these ideas from, Jeffrey. Sometimes I think that you are on drugs and hallucinating. I have this DVD right here. It's a CD, and it doesn't exist. Sierra definitely did not put out an expansion to Diablo. That did not happen. There was no Meteor. There was no eight new levels of dungeons. Why are we doing this? This is a Will Wright podcast. This is a bad tangent even on our level of tangents. We're going to put a stop to this nonsense right now. Anywho, Diablo 4 is out. I haven't bought it yet, but I hear people like it. Now, moving on. Will Wright's not interested in that because Will Wright is not a conventional game designer. 
that's something that's been a theme in what we've already covered, and it's going to be a theme in what we cover going forward. Will Wright isn't a designer that's like, this is the game I want to make next. This is what I want to do next. Wouldn't it be cool to make a game featuring hats? That's not the way Will Wright's mind works. The way Will Wright has always worked is, what am I taking a personal interest in right now? I'm an insatiably curious person, so insatiably curious that I couldn't finish college because I couldn't keep on one subject, one major, long enough to amass a degree in five years of schooling. So what am I interested at this moment, which is something that's going to change quite a bit over time, and how does that thing I'm interested in this moment translate into a game? Of course, SimCity does set a future direction for both Maxis and for Will Wright. It's pretty clear now that even though we're still going to be guided by what is Will Wright's interest in the moment, that interest is probably going to be translated into some kind of simulation. The days of doing action arcade games like Raid on Bungling Bay are probably over for Mr. Will Wright. Indeed, Maxis itself becomes sim-crazy in this time period. Sim this, sim that. Most of those are not done by Will Wright, but that becomes the identity of Maxis in this time period. However, the next one, the very first one, certainly is Will Wright because he decides to follow up on SimCity by creating a little simulation called Sim Earth. I have vague recollections of that one. Yes, I believe you are familiar with it in its Super Nintendo configuration specifically. Though, of course, that was a port. Uh, It was originally a PC game. On the one hand, it might seem like, okay, well, he's doing the thing that you do. He's making a sequel. It's like, well, we've simulated a city. What can we do next? Well, let's simulate an entire planet. So it does track in that way. But, of course, it is down to what he became interested in at that time. And it just so happened that in that period, he had become very, very interested in the Gaia hypothesis. Are you familiar, Mr. Jeffrey, with the Gaia hypothesis? Taking a stab at it, I think it's the idea that Earth is a larger organism and that we as human beings and other animals are sort of like cells operating within that larger organism in order to facilitate its greater life. That's in a way what we're talking about here. Now, we're not talking about this in some kind of mystical connection, something like, say, Isaac Asimov did in his later Foundation works, where we're talking about everything is actually literally connected to a more giant organism that is the Earth. That is basically what the Gaia Hypothesis is. It was formed by a chemist by the name of James Lovelock in the 1970s, who was working with a microbiologist named Lynn Margulies. Named after Gaia, the goddess who personified Earth in Greek mythology. It's the idea that Earth's organic and inorganic pieces evolved in a symbiotic relationship to each other. You know, you have the theory of evolution, the idea of natural selection, the idea that individual organisms change based on their environment in order to survive and thrive within their environment. This is an idea that's kind of moving beyond the idea that just organic life is evolving, but also that as organic life evolves, it is shaping the inorganic world around it. 
As you have more bacteria that are creating more oxygen, they're creating an atmosphere, and then that atmosphere allows bigger organisms. You know, it allows plants, and plants are converting carbon dioxide to oxygen. You have storms that erode mountains that create rain systems or water cycle Mm -hmm. systems that create the Grand Canyon. Yeah. All of that creates new life that then changes the atmosphere in different ways. Exactly. And, and, you know, I'm being loosey-goosey here in the sense that I'm not trying to describe exactly what the process is, but this is just kind of an example of what we mean when we're talking about organic and inorganic shaping each other. Now, does that tie into some of the other similar thought processes, like, say, how the Schumann resonance, a resonance in Earth? I've heard some sort of theorizing that, hey, there's this resonance going on that maybe connects human beings on a subconscious level. Uh, no, because that's that's getting into to other areas. It's, it's really more about how the global conditions on Earth, things like atmospheric oxygen levels, salinity in seawater, temperatures, everything else are kind of moved by this back-and-forth tug-of-war evolution between organic and inorganic. Now, this is not a widely accepted theory in science. I'm not an expert, so we're not going to have a thorough discussion on this. We're, We're a video game history podcast. But there are a lot of problems with this hypothesis. It does not dovetail well with other theories. It doesn't play nice with a lot of what we have observed and what we have theorized. So it's not really that greatly regarded by scientists, but it's a theory that's out there, and Lovelock became somewhat famous on this theory after he published it, and it's a theory that Will Wright happened to be reading in this time period when he was thinking about what to do for his next game. So that's what he did. He decided, well, wouldn't it be kind of cool to simulate the entire planet and the evolution of the of the planet. And I can see that right there. Will Wright likes to make simulations of system. Uh-huh. What better thing than the planet itself? I want to simulate the systems of air currents and storms. I want to mm-hmm. simulate the water cycle. I want to simulate life to some degree. Maybe not all life, but let's say we have some plants that create oxygen, some plants that eat oxygen. Mm-hmm. Some animals doing things to eat the plants, some plants to eat the animals, who knows? <laughs> feed me, Seymour, feed me. <laughs> A Venus flytrap has to be useful for something. Absolutely. So he went out and he, uh, with the help of uh, another uh, programmer named Fred Haslam, created this really, really complex climate models atmospheric models, etc., to model a whole planet, and released it in 1990 as Sim Earth, and it was a disaster. I don't mean one of those fun disasters that you turn on in Sim City to watch everything burn, because that's an entertaining disaster. The problem with Sim Earth is it was a boring disaster. Will Wright himself admits this. He came up with a really great model, according to him, and I obviously haven't fact-checked him on this, but according to him, some of the weather models that they created for this game were picking up on elements of atmospheric conditions and atmospheric phenomenon that even professional models being run by weather services and whatnot had not been picking up on at the time that they did the program. How true that is, I don't know, I haven't fact-checked it, but the point is, they put together a really good model. The problem is, it was too good and too complex. When it comes down to being a game, and Will Wright himself has said this, he admits that Sim Earth has problems. When you have a game, you need a good cause and effect for the player to feel like they're making a difference and for the player to feel like 
they are able to shape what is happening, and if they fail, they understand why they failed within the game systems. A bit of a tangent, because this is not about systems so much as difficulty, but take a Souls game, for instance. Those games are brutally hard, and people that start playing Souls games, the first few times they play them, they just die over and over and over again. But as you continue to play them, you see how each of the bosses work. You start to understand what their movement patterns are, what their weaknesses are, when you should strike, where you should strike. Even though you are failing, often repeatedly, you feel like you are accomplishing something with each failure, and it feels fair, and that's what keeps you coming back. The problem with Sim Earth is that climate models are very complicated, newsflash, Changing a variable can have unintended and unexplained consequences elsewhere. It's like chaos theory. It's like how they say a butterfly flaps its wings and there's a hurricane on the other side of the world. You change one little variable in a climate model and it can have a snowball effect, pun sort of intended, on the rest of the climate. That's why you have weather people who cannot predict the weather more than 48 hours ahead, it seems like, especially around where I live. might be a bit yeah. different elsewhere, but I was told today that it was going to be sunny and hot. Hello, rainstorm. Yes, because the part of the Mississippi River you're along, there were bluffs, and that causes air currents to do weird things, and so they can't predict very well there. It's very true. The problem that would happen is people would lose the game. Sometimes you win or whatever. There's no win or lose state. I mean, it's one of Will Wright's simulations. Well, I mean, there's no win state, but there is a lose state because you can't ruin your planet so that you can't do anything else with it. So in that sense, you kind of have a lose state, even though you can theoretically keep going as long as you want. It's a simulation. It's like SimCity. It's a sandbox. It's not like you're trying to achieve a particular goal. But the thing is, if you're working towards your own personal goal, not like a goal defined by the game, but if you're like trying to get to this point or something, you make some changes weird stuff happens, you fail at what you're accomplishing, and you have no idea why. Even worse, this is again something Will Wright himself has said, Will Wright, as the programmer of the models, could take your saved game, look at everything you did, and he would also not be able to explain why it didn't work. Yeah, this sounds more like, hey, we're modeling something that the weather people need to deal with, not so much that little Johnny and little Susie sit down and go, yay, I made the planet go boom. <laughs> right. So Sim Earth was a pretty bad failure. It was an interesting experiment, but it was just too complex a system to try to simulate at the level of detail he was trying to simulate. It obviously you can dumb it down. Obviously, you can make a planet simulator that has a more direct cause and effect. But again, that's not what Will Wright does. If Will Wright happens to make a fun game, Good for him and good for everyone around him. But he's not starting from the point of view of, let's make a good game. He's starting from the point of view of, let's simulate some systems and see what happens. If he had dumbed down Sim Earth, if he had created something with a similar objective, but with a lot more direct cause and effect between what you're doing and how the planet's shaped to make it more of a god game, so to speak, than a simulation, yeah, I mean, he could have done that, and maybe there'd have been something playable and interesting, but it wouldn't have been a Will Wright game anymore, because that is not a Will Wright game. He's made that observation. You know, the economic sims work, because there's very clear cause and effect. Our whole stock and flow that we talked about in SimCity. Police station goes up, crimes go down. 
Put in parks, land value goes up. Put in industry with pollution, land value goes down. It's like there's direct cause and effect that you can see for almost every system. And yes, these individual systems can combine to act in slightly more complicated ways, but never as complicated as something like Sim Earth. The economic works, but trying to simulate whole life systems, that is just too much, man. So that's Sim Earth. How do you follow up on that? Well, this did cause Will Wright to pull back a little bit. We're still talking about the same Will Wright who becomes interested in a topic, builds systems around it, and then runs with that. At this point, he realized, okay, maybe we need something with a little more direction and a little more objective to it. Maybe we don't just need an open-ended complex as simulation as, as I can make. So with his next game, he actually ended up making a game with an objective, with a win state, Jeffrey. <gasps> this time, it was about a concept that had fascinated him since he was young, which is that lovable little scamp of an insect, the ant. I am, of course, referring to the 1991 Will Wright release, Sim Ant. Are you familiar with Sim Ant, Jeffrey? I played it as a kid. Unlike Sim City and Sim Earth, that's not one I got from your neck of the woods. So I don't know how familiar you are with Sim Ant. If I recall correctly, I heard of it, but I never really played it. Mm -hmm. Sort of like Sim Earth, it was one of those ones where I rented it from the video game store, but didn't really play a lot of it. I played a little bit of it. I mean, I didn't play it obsessively or anything. I played it a little bit. This, of course, was once again driven by his interest in ants, and then it was driven specifically by the work of one of the premier myrmecologists, a Harvard professor by the name of E.O. Wilson, who did a lot of study on ants, how ants evolved, also on how ants communicated using pheromones. This was kind of the thing I think that really particularly fascinated Will Wright about the ants and was really informed by the work that he read by Professor E.O. Wilson here. We're going into all these sub-subjects, you know, which we're not experts in. We're in these Will Wright episodes. We're talking about climate models. We're talking about servo dynamics. We're talking about systems dynamics. Excuse us if any of our explanations of this stuff is simplistic or whatever. At the very least, if you want more information, I will try to get relevant videos into the show notes. As some of our listeners are probably aware of, especially if they've had infestations of ants in their homes, ants communicate by leaving trails of pheromones for each other that communicate different messages. Here is good food, being one of the more prominent ones. Here is queen, go have sex now, make more ants. They leave these trails that they use to go about the daily life of the colony and go gather food and uh, dig new tunnels and defend themselves and, and breed and, and all of these things. He was very fascinated by this idea, and that's kind of what led him to create the Sim Ant game. So in Sim Ant, you control a single ant in an ant colony that kind of becomes the dominant ant. You don't control the other ants, but your ant can kind of sort of have them go along with what he's doing. Your ant can go out and lay pheromone trails that communicates to the other ants, go here, collect food, go here to defend this part of the colony from threats, all of these kind of things, in addition to going around yourself and digging tunnels and doing all of these things. So it's almost like a proto-real-time strategy game. Because it all happens in real time, and you acquire units, and you have the units undertake various activities, resource gathering, defense, and whatnot, and your ultimate goal is to take over the yard and the house. 
The yard has colonies of red ants that you need to overcome. You need to break through their defenses and kill their queens. Of course, at the same time, they're trying to go after you, too. There are also other obstacles and enemies you have to watch out for in the yard. There are spiders, pill bugs, ant lions, those pesky humans coming around with their lawnmowers and their bug-killing chemicals, etc. You slowly expand your territory, expand your colony, take out the enemy red ant colonies, and then eventually move your colony into the house and infest the house until the humans leave. You have created glorious new house paradise for ant kind. So it has a goal, a will-ride simulation with a goal. As Will Wright said, it was really, it was a response to Sim Earth. He really backed off and did a 180, because even though he's moving primarily around what interests him, he is still a game designer. He still makes his living doing this. He understands he needs to sell product. So he decided, okay, this time I'll give them a tangible goal. <laughs> we won't just make it this open-ended thing where you build the colony as big as you can until you get bored. You actually have a win state, which is driving the humans out of the house. That game did fine. It did pretty good. I mean, it was no SimCity, but it sold at least 100,000 units because it got that coveted SBA Platinum certification that we talked about in our 100,000 for 100,000 episode. We didn't mention this game in that episode because it received Platinum certification after the list we used was out, but we explained that whole ranking system for software sales. So it did fine. It hit a younger demographic. Will Wright's games tended to trend older because they were these sandbox simulation things. SimCity, I mean, it's sold to a broad array of demographics, but also sold to a lot of older people. SimAnt really more appealed to kids, not super young kids, not five-year-olds, but like 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, because it was a little bit of an easier simulation to follow. And, you know, bugs, uh, young boys tend to be fascinated by bugs, and it had a tangible goal, unlike some of the other games. So it did fine. It didn't light the world on fire, but it did fine. Speaking of fire, however, this is when another event intervened that changed the entire course of Will Wright's career and led directly to what became, for a time, the best-selling computer game of all time. Will Wright had just finished Sem Ant, like a week before. He had been working on it primarily at home. He had just finished it and brought it into the office so that it could actually be tested and duplicated and all of that stuff. Then, on the morning of October 20th, 1991, Wright awoke in his house in the Oakland Hills, his and his wife's and his daughter's, though his daughter was not there at the time, she was at a friend's house, and smelled smoke. Not coming from inside his house, but smelled smoke coming from somewhere. So he dialed 911. He was told, don't panic. Everything is under control. There was a lot of smoke in the air, but fine. The fire department people, the emergency services people, say it's under control. So we'll take their word for it. They're trained professionals. So he goes to shower. Let me guess. Lies. <laughs> By the time he got out of the bathroom from showering and shaving... He noticed there was an awful lot more smoke than when he had entered the bathroom to shower and shave. He called 911 again, and despite what he was hearing, he thought that perhaps it was time to leave. So he and his wife, like I said, his daughter was not there, grabbed up just a few family pictures and mementos. They went next door where they knew their neighbor had left their 
two-year-old with grandparents who were babysitting. They didn't have a car with them. He knew they wouldn't be able to evacuate by themselves. They grabbed the grandparents and the two-year-old. They all got in the car together and got the heck out of there. Literally, probably, about five minutes, not an exaggeration, about five minutes before they would have been killed in the raging fire that was the Oakland-Berkeley firestorm. One of the most disastrous fires to that point in California history, which destroyed over 2,800 homes, killed 25 people, injured 150 others, and created an economic loss estimated at $1.5 billion. Their house was a complete loss. Gone. So from a game history perspective, just stepping outside of the story, one of the real tragedies here is all of the development materials. Will Wright has donated some of his materials that he's had to institutions and whatnot, but all the development materials for his earliest games, like Bungling Bay and SimCity, completely up in smoke. They got out with their lives. I mean, that was the important thing. Of course, at this time, then the question becomes, how do you rebuild? From this. And I don't mean how do you build a new house. I mean, Will Wright's a very successful software developer at this point. They're not hurting for money. They're not destitute on the street because this happened. So when I say how do you rebuild, I don't mean that in the existential sense of, oh my God, how do we ever rebuild? This is Will Wright we're talking about. This is the analytical systematizing Will Wright. When he says, how do you rebuild, what he means is, in what order do you reacquire things? Like, what do you need in this moment? Like, when you first lost everything, what are the first things you need? Is it a toothbrush? Is it a new pair of underwear that you can change into? Where do you start? Then once you've acquired those basic things, where do you go from there? Like, how do you actually go about building a whole life over from scratch in a materialistic point of view? I would think at the very start, you would go with following the Maslow hierarchy of need. That would certainly be a big part of it. I agree with that. That is one of the things, incidentally, that Will Wright did start reading about as he went through this process of rebuilding things. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a pretty simple thing. It was created by a psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow in 1943 in a paper he wrote called A Theory of Human Motivation, and his goal was to try to understand what it is that motivates human curiosity and human striving and human seeking and what it is that makes humans act the way they do and do the things they do. And he created a pyramid, this hierarchy of needs. At the bottom is your physiological needs. It's like air, food, water, shelter. Then safety, having personal security, having your health, having a place to sleep, having a job to keep you with the money that allows you to keep acquiring the physiological needs. Then the third level is love and belonging, having a sense of connection with other people, friendships, intimate relationships. Above that, esteem, now that you have everything in your personal internal life, turning outward and getting recognition from those around you. Then finally, self-actualization which is the drive to be the very best that you can be. You have everything in life, but you still keep going anyway. And that's self-actualizations. So that was part of it. That was one thing that he started reading about during this time period. 
The other thing was just the very simple kind of rebuilding of a space for yourself. He found that he didn't really miss most of the stuff that he lost. He found that he really wasn't that materialist of a person. I mean, everyone's going to be hit different ways, but that's the way he was hit. He found he didn't miss the stuff. So he became very interested in not so much thinking about stuff for stuff's sake, but thinking about why we need stuff, which leads him towards Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but then also how stuff works in relationship to the space that you need to live in. How stuff, how your life should be organized to best self-actualize, so to speak. In this manner, he was brought to the theories of another very interesting individual. It all comes back to reading about these different theories, which was an architect by the name of Christopher Alexander. Christopher Alexander was a very interesting individual who, in the 1970s, wrote a book in 1977 called A Pattern Language, Towns, Buildings, Construction co-authored with two others, Sarah Ishikawa and Murray Silverstein. In this book, he kind of advanced a theory that he had that space and the way we develop space, the way we develop objects, the way we develop places, should ideally be based around the social constructs of the society that is building them. There should be a merger of function and form that is defined by societal need. So in this book, they created a series of a couple of hundred patterns for building all sorts of things, from single rooms all the way up to whole cities and regions, where they were designing with specificity how every piece of that should be. So some of these patterns are very small because they might just be a single piece of furniture or a single garden. Some of them were much larger because they could be building a whole city. Describing how you create these patterns based on these societal needs. So just to give a really basic example, if you're a doctor and you have a practice and you're going to see a lot of patients and those patients are going to have to wait around while you are going through all your appointments, then you need to have a place in your building for them to wait around, and that's why you have a waiting room in a doctor's office. In a fast food restaurant, you don't have a waiting room because the whole idea is you give them their food very quickly, so they're waiting at the most five minutes, so you don't need to build a waiting room in a fast food restaurant. Obviously, Alexander takes it to much more complex places than that, but that's just a really simple example of what he's kind of getting at. What this kind of reminds me of is feng shui, in a way. Yes, and it has been compared to that. It has been called, in some ways, a Western version of feng shui. Feng shui is, of course, much more spiritual. It's about the harmony of a space, whereas Alexander isn't really concerned about harmony so much as he is about practical use. But it is, in a way, a kind of feng shui. I think that's a fair thing to say. It really depends on what your priorities are. You were saying that the function of a place followed to society. Mm -hmm. So in a Western philosophy, we got waiting rooms and all this other stuff, and we might not be concerned about balance and harmony, but in a more collectivist society like most Asian countries, mm -hmm. that might have a lot more value. Right. He was very much about truly function over form. 
he believed in using the cheapest building materials possible that would practically work for what you're doing. He's not talking about being cheap. He's not talking about creating a building that's so rickety that it collapses after two years because you used substandard building materials. It's just don't use marble, use concrete. Use cheap, inexpensive materials that last rather than ostentatious, fancy materials that cost way more money but don't do anything to enhance function. That was kind of his entire theory of architectural design in a nutshell. Will Wright had always been interested in architecture. We talked about it in our previous episode, how architecture was one of the many subjects that he was very well read in and flitting around with while he was in college. So he already had that basic interest in architecture. And then when he had to rebuild his own home and reacquire his own stuff, he started seeking more and more for theories of architecture. That's what got him to Alexander's work. And he was very interested in how this intersected with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, because there's kind of this idea that a properly formed living space, a properly formed habitat is going to serve the needs of the individual and that a lot of happiness and self-actualization can be derived from having a living space that is perfectly designed for your needs in terms of the architecture and then is perfectly stocked for your needs in terms of the stuff you populate it with. Then, as kind of a third inspiration, those were the primary inspirations. But then the third inspiration was the work of a psychologist named Charles Hamden Turner called Maps of the Mind, which was a 1981 work that examined more than 50 theories about how the human brain works that were postulated by people from all walks, not just psychologists, but also artists and others, and tried to map how the mind functions, not entirely in the scientific sense, some of it in the philosophical sense, I think, as well, but kind of how the mind functions and how we fulfill our needs and how we feel successful or self-actualized, you know, kind of tying in with all of this stuff. Putting all of this together, he thought it would be really cool to create an architecture game. We are at this point talking about an architecture game. An architecture game where your goal was to design and furnish a quote-unquote perfect space for a set of humans to thrive in. Is this where we get Sim Tower? (laughs) No. That's a Japanese game that had the Sim name thrown onto it because Maxis was all about everything being a Sim thing. (laughs) No, we're talking about what becomes the Sims which he started thinking about all the way back in 1993, released in 2000. Starts thinking about all the way back here in 1993, and he's thinking about it in the aftermath of rebuilding his life. Well, not rebuilding his life, but rebuilding his possessions after this devastating fire. But at this point, it's an architecture game. The idea is that you will have this group of people, and these people will have a behavioral model. But the point is to design the perfect space, and the people are basically just there to keep score. Give them a set of motives. Provide design elements that you can use to create this space. 
to meet those needs and motivations. Your score, so to speak, is how well you meet the needs of the family that's living in this house. But it's it's not about the family. It's not about what much later come to be called Sims. It's not about them. It's about the architectural environment. And that's why the original code name for this thing is Dollhouse. Because it's about building a dollhouse, essentially, that perfectly works within these theories that Will Wright has been absorbing. So he starts working on this just himself alone. He kind of putters around with it a bit, and he starts getting some of the the basic stuff put together. Then he ends up getting completely sidetracked. Because unfortunately, even though he does not like sequels at all, because they run completely counter the kind of person he is, because he wants to read about a system, learn about a system, and then implement that system. And once he's done that, he's ready to move on to something else. He doesn't feel like he solved everything there was to solve in urban planning with SimCity. He's not in any way claiming it's the perfect game or the perfect city simulator. But what he is saying is he solved it to the best of his ability at that exact moment. And now he's ready to learn about the next thing. Remember, as we said, this is the guy that didn't graduate college because he just couldn't stick with one subject long enough to graduate. And he was brilliant. It wasn't because he couldn't do his classes. It's that he couldn't focus on one thing long enough to finish it. Will Wright has never had an interest in sequels. Will Wright had absolutely no interest in doing a sequel to SimCity. Now, of course, Maxis was going to do a sequel to SimCity. I mean, he's not telling Maxis don't do a sequel. He's just saying, I want nothing to do with that. I'm going to go off and do my next fun thing. Thank you very much. So Fred Haslam, the programmer he did Sim Earth with, was tasked with doing the sequel to SimCity, what ultimately became SimCity 2000. There were problems. It hit roadblocks. Development wasn't going well. So they had to bring Will Wright in to fix it. Will Wright ends up doing SimCity 2000. Not going to really go in-depth about that here now. I mean, it's a great game. It's brilliant. That was the SimCity I definitely spent the most time with out of all the SimCities. I reticulated the heck out of those splines, Jeffrey. I mean, (laughs) if you can't reticulate some splines, (laughs) what point is there in life? It's a brilliant game. It builds on SimCity in every way. It has an isometric view, which allows them to do elevation. It just has more and more and more. It has a water system, more types of roads, more types of buildings. It's great. It's wonderful. But it is just more of the same. I mean, from a Will Wright perspective, it's not an interesting product because he's not reading about new things and incorporating new things and doing exciting, bold new experiments like all of his other games. It's enough to say that it happened and it was very successful. And it's a very fun game. But for Will Wright, just talking about Will Wright personally, it was a distraction. It was a step sideways. It was a step backwards in some ways, even. Because he's not a sequel guy. So he gets that done. And then he ends up dividing his attention between three projects at that point. He's still kind of working on this dollhouse thing in the background. He's also been pressed into doing another Sim game, Sim Copter. He likes helicopters, so that's kind of fun. We won't go into detail on SimCopter either, but basically it's a 3D game where basically you can take the cities that you have created in the very two-dimensional SimCity 2000 and then fly around in them, import them into SimCopter, where they are imported in 3D polygonal graphics, and then fly around them in a helicopter. And there are a few things that you can do in there. You can do some police stuff. You can do some medevac stuff. 
There's, there's a few little mini games, but the main thing about it is kind of flying around in the city you built. Finally comes out in 1996. It's whatever. It didn't do all that great. This period of time when not everything is exactly going old Maxis's way, which, you know, we're not going into real depth here, but it came out. So sure, whatever. So that was game number two, which was released in 1996, Simcopter. The third game is very interesting, but never released, but it's fascinating in concept, and it would have been kind of interesting to see where it had gone. He did a game, or was working on a game, that combined Myst, which had come out at this time and had taken the world by storm with its beautiful vistas and these all of these islands and worlds that you walk around in that are that are mostly empty and you fiddle with all of these levers and valves and buttons uh, to try to get various pieces of machinery to work to solve puzzles etc taking all of that and combining it with another topic that had become very interesting to him in this moment which was the Hindenburg disaster and he was fascinated by the Hindenburg disaster because there were lots of competing theories about why the airship blew up. There was no one definitive known reason for why the Hindenburg caught fire and exploded. There were all sorts of theories on how it could have happened, and of course all of those theories were based around how the Hindenburg worked, what the control systems were like, what the fuel system was like, what the hydrogen system was like, you know, in the, in the blimp. Where in all of those systems did things break down such that the Hindenburg exploded in a ball of fire. It's a systems thing again. So he, he was inspired by the Hindenburg, that disaster, and, and by Mist and the way Mist worked. And so he created a very similar game where you end up on the Hindenburg, except the Hindenburg is completely empty because this is Mist-like. It's not an adventure game. It's, it's Mist-like. Mist is all of these abandoned worlds. You're on an abandoned Hindenburg. So you're on the Hindenburg. The Hindenburg is on its real historic course towards the field in New Jersey, where it finally crashed and burned, quite literally. It's a complete, accurate remaking of the Hindenburg. So every valve, every lever, every switch, every button, every whatever that was on the real Hindenburg is in the game. I don't know how far it got, you know, how far through the programming they got, so I don't know if that literally existed or if it was just on paper. But the idea was that every last thing on the actual Hindenburg would be there and would actually do the thing that it did on the real Hindenburg. If pressing this button did this thing on the real Hindenburg, then pressing that button would also do that thing on the simulated Hindenburg. Completely accurate recreation. The idea was you had until the Hindenburg got to the spot where it blew up to fiddle around with all the parts of this airship and figure out a way to save the Hindenburg and stop it from exploding. It's kind of an interesting idea. I mean, I don't know how fun a game it would have been in practice. That's kind of a cool idea, really, when you think about it. I can sort of see that. You have a game where you're trying to rewrite history in a way, and I can see you extrapolating that out where you have like various historical disasters that are simulated you figure out, okay, this is how I saved the Hindenburg. Here's how I saved the Titanic. Here's <laughs> how I save whatever. Yeah, I suppose you could go on and, and do more. Not that Will Wright would, because he detests sequels. Well, I would think it would be part of the same game. No, no, th this game was just going to be the Hindenburg. Just the Hindenburg. That's all it was going to be. But it was going to be an incredibly complete simulation of the Hindenburg, kind of inspired by the way Mist worked. 
the reason he put it down had nothing to do with whether he thought it was fun or not or interesting or not or anything like that. The, the reason he finally decided to put it down is there was just one real problem with the Hindenburg, other than the fact that it blew up. And that is, it was a transportation conveyance built by and highly touted by Nazi Germany. People might take issue, yeah. He personally took issue. I mean, he he personally decided that he didn't want to go there because of the Nazi connection to the Hindenburg. So he scrapped the game for that reason. At one time, he was working on three games. Simcopter was released, 1996. The Hindenburg game, he killed. All on his own. Nobody made him do it. Then there's this other project, this dollhouse, that he thought was kind of cool and nobody else did. He had problems with SimCity. You know, he couldn't get a publisher for SimCity, but he was able to excite Jeff Braun at that pizza party. And then they formed a company together. He was able to find that one person who was interested. And even though no existing publishers were interested, he was able to find a guy and they'd be like, well, we'll found our own publisher with city building simulators and hookers. And they forgot about the hookers, but they didn't forget about the city simulator. Bonus points if you get that reference, which you probably do because we've only used it like 50 million times on this podcast, but whatever. So they just created their own publisher. But now he has his own publisher. This is his publisher, co-founded with Jeff Braun, who, of course, is still there running the business side. He can't get any traction within his own publisher that he owns to do anything with this game. The complaints are numerous, but they come down to two basic things, really. One is... Nobody wants to just sit around watching people go about their normal daily routine lives, doing mundane tasks. People play games to escape from mundane tasks, to put off the mundane tasks waiting for them in their own house. So why are they going to want to play a game where that becomes the whole point? Second of all, they said, even if we can see this more of as an activity toy, like a dollhouse, which was his code name for it. Dollhouses are something girls play with, and girls do not play computer games. The boys that make up our primary market, and I'm just talking about the perspective of the marketing executives. Of course there were girls to play computer games, but I'm just talking about what the marketers are saying. Boys aren't going to want to play in a dollhouse. Girls don't play computer games. So nobody's going to buy this thing. You have no market. Well, Wright wasn't going to take no for an answer, so it's like, well, let's at least do a focus group, okay? Let's put this idea in front of a focus group and see what they think about it. Sometime in late 1993, they do a focus group. The worst focus group in the history of Maxis. Nobody is interested in the vision that they have been pitched. Nobody wants to buy this thing. And remember, when you have a focus group, you are presenting your product in the absolute best light you possibly can. Like you're putting a pitch together for these people to try to entice them to really like what you want to sell them. You know, you're weighting the odds in your favor. There isn't somebody over here that's providing the other side, the negative side. You're just trying to pitch it in a way that you think will entice people. You're halfway there at the start because you've got your pitch. Nobody is interested. Nobody wants this thing. Nobody wants to buy it. Reinforcing what Jeff Braun and other people at Maxis believe, that this entire thing is nuts. But right is really convinced this is a cool idea. Wright wants to keep it going. So he says, okay, fine. We don't have to make this a big project. Just give me one programmer. Just one. Let me go off. 
I'll keep working on it, and let's see what we can do here. He's Will Wright. He's the co-owner of the company, the creator of the company's flagship game. The whole reason that a Maxis exists in the first place. So what are they going to say? Are they going to say no to that? No, of course they're not going to say no to that. So they give him his one programmer, Jamie Dornbos. Together they go off and start trying to perfect the behavioral system in the game. You know, it's an architecture game at this point. It's about building the perfect space, furnishing the perfect space. And Will Wright has put a lot of work into this, but now Dornbos is going to really start working on the behavioral model because there are going to be people in it. But what they need to do is model the people psychologically based on a lot of these theories he's read. I mean, it's not going to be a perfect encapsulation of a human brain. I mean, even psychologists and neuroscientists don't have a perfect encapsulation of the human brain today. So, I mean, they're not striving for complete and utter realism, but they're taking some theories that Will Wright particularly likes about the way the mind works, combining that with Maslow's hierarchy of needs and this idea of how we self-actualize, and then combining that with this pattern theory and architecture that, that Christopher Alexander has done. Then the people, as I said earlier, serve as kind of the score, the way you keep score. Like, did you build a space that meets the needs of these individuals? And how good a job did you do of meeting the needs of these individuals? And that's kind of your score. That's how good you're doing. So they start working on the behavior model in depth, and they are completely indebted once again to Sim Ant. So there are really two things without which the Sims would not exist in the, in the way we know it. One is the very tragic Oakland-Berkeley firestorm of October 1991. The other is Sim Ant, because he needed a system that would be highly, highly flexible. He didn't want to put dozens or hundreds of objects into the game that each had to be very minutely defined. He didn't want to have to rate things across a variety of different methods of how they worked and how the way they worked intersected with the needs and wants of the humans. So he needed something that was simple and reproducible and would work immediately with a wide variety of objects. So he went back to pheromones, because in Sim Ant, he had the model of the pheromones. So basically, what they did is they created a system where every object in the game would have a pheromone trail. That pheromone trail would correspond to one of the wants and needs that they were building into their behavioral models of the individuals. I don't know at what point they settled on their final set of motives, so I don't know if at this point they were just dealing with a couple or whatever, but the final version of The Sims has eight of these in the very first game. Hunger, hygiene, bladder, gotta pee, and they will pee, whether you give them a toilet or not. Comfort, energy, social, fun, and what they called room. So it was these wants and needs and how strongly the individual people felt about these wants and needs that drove them towards particular objects, particular spaces, particular activities. So they gave every object in the game a pheromone trail that corresponded to one of these needs. So a piece of food would give off a pheromone trail for satisfying hunger. A shower would give off a pheromone trail satisfying hygiene. Then, like an ant, the people would follow these pheromone trails to the thing that they needed most in that moment in order to satisfy their current want or need. Sandbox, like in the last episode, satisfying bladders. Uh-huh. 
as they developed this behavioral model of this thing that they called dollhouse, they realized as this behavioral model developed and this pheromone model developed, they realized that it was actually really fun just manipulating these people based on their needs and wants. So that's the moment that it changed over from being an architecture game to being a life simulator. They realized that's where they found the fun. Somewhere around this time, I don't know exactly, I don't have detailed timelines, what had been called Dollhouse took on a new name, which was Home Tactics, the Experimental Domestic Simulator. I don't know. With a name like that, I almost expect to have like one of those modern turn-based combat games where just have like my squad <laughs> in the house and it's like, food draws near. Command, let us all find the right path to the food before food and hunger destroys us. Well, you know, and I don't know the story behind the name, so I can't speak to any of that definitively, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's part of what they were trying to envision with that, even though it had nothing to do with what the game was. Remember, they're in a quandary where they feel like this isn't going to sell to boys, but that girls don't play computer games. It almost feels like somebody said, and I don't know that this is true, but just following that thread to its logical conclusion, it almost feels like somebody said, well, Dollhouse is a very feminine name, just in terms of gender constructs, not making any judgment about who does or should or could play with dollhouses. I'm just saying as a gender construct, a dollhouse is a very feminine thing. So we can't have that. Home tactics. That sounds like some kind of strategy game. And the kids love the strategy games these days. They're all playing the Warcrafts and the Commands and Conquers and the Dunes 2 and all of that. So I wouldn't be surprised if they weren't trying to evoke that a little bit to try to make this sound cool to the boys and men that they felt were their demographic that would actually buy this. So you have home economics, one side of the aisle, and then you have home tactics for the other. That's right. That's a gendered title if I have ever heard one, (laughs) for sure. There was just one problem, though. Nobody believed in it still. Everyone thought he was nuts. Nobody could understand it. But he was able to keep it going. So... Maxis had a small tools team, an advanced tools team that worked in a completely different building, actually. Their entire job was to make new tools for everyone to use to make their games. The problem was most programmers, most game companies at this time didn't really understand the advantageous nature of middleware yet, which is obviously a big part of the game industry today. All of the teams at Maxis didn't want to use the stuff being made by the tools team because they're like, well, why would we use stuff made by these other guys who don't understand what I'm doing on my game at all? I'm going to make my own tools that are custom tailored to the exact project that I'm making, and I'm not going to use these other people's tools. That's just how people thought back then. They didn't think about the idea of having a licensed game engine or licensed tools was a great way to save time on your games and all of that stuff. They're just like, well, I'll make my own stuff. So nobody was using the tools that these four programmers were making. Maxis was about to close down the satellite office. So Will Wright was like, wait, wait, wait. Don't close down the satellite office. I will move my home tactics, dollhouse, whatever they're calling it at this point, project out to the satellite office. Those guys can work on my project. So they're like, okay, fine. Laying people off sucks. 
you know, it keeps them a job and you're happy and you can go off to another office and we can ignore this stupid little thing you're working on and get around to the real business of running a company. Will Wright got to keep working on this thing at the satellite office with these programmers nobody else wanted. <laughs> Jamie Dornbos was there as well, of course. The project kept going, despite the fact that nobody had any faith in it. Then the real turning point came in 1997. Maxis, for a variety of reasons that we'll go into in some future episode where we actually cover the history of Maxis, was not doing well. Financial catastrophe was about to send the company to its doom. Not the good type of doom with the cacodemons and the BFG. The bad kind of doom where your company just ceases to exist. So they courted a variety of suitors and ended up, in 1997, selling out to Electronic Arts. You know, Electronic Arts gets a really mixed report card when it comes to buying companies. There's a pervasive idea that Electronic Arts buys a company, forces them to create way too many games way too fast, quality suffers, everything's buggy, franchises die, companies die, Electronic Arts ends up shutting down the companies they purchased, and Electronic Arts ruins everything for everybody, and nobody deserves a cookie. We don't have time to unpack all that here. We should probably do an episode about that someday. I think that reputation is a bit overblown. There are certainly situations where there have been issues, some of which were caused by Electronic Arts, some of which weren't. We kind of touched on this in our Trilogy of Trilogies episodes on the Ultima series, where a lot of people blame Electronic Arts for what happened to Ultima 8, but in large part it was really Origin's own fault what happened to (laughs) Ultima 8, not Electronic Arts. I think that gets overblown a little bit. But regardless of how much of that is true or not, there is one thing that we can say 100% is true. Being purchased by Electronic Arts was the best thing that could have ever happened to Maxis and to Will Wright. This theoretical episode on EA, I already have a title for it. EA, Four Lays into Adulthood. (laughs) Right, because we did the teenage years. The reason for this is that as EA was circling a purchase and considering whether they wanted to purchase this company or not, Don Matrick, head of Worldwide Studios for Electronic Arts, offered the position of general manager to a 35-year-old Frenchman by the name of Luc Barthelet. Luc Barthelet was first and foremost a technologist. He had his own company that was purchased by Electronic Arts because they really wanted his expertise on the technology end, and he's still a technologist. These days, he's the senior VP of technology at Unity, the game engine company. He's still in the business. He was very instrumental, for better or worse, in the creation of the 3DO hardware that had mixed success. You know, he didn't join the 3DO company, he remained at Electronic Arts, but he had been really involved in it. He was tapped by Matrick to come with him and scout out Maxis to see if it was a worthwhile purchase, and then if they did decide to purchase it, to become the general manager of the studio. Luke Barthelet, when he met Will Wright, he was just blown away. He was blown away by Will Wright's intellect, blown away by Will Wright's way of thinking about the world and thinking about game design. And because he was so impressed with Will Wright the person, he was willing to trust unequivocally 
Will Wright, the game designer. So when he is shown Home Tactics, Dollhouse, I don't have an exact timeline, so whatever they're calling it at this point, I don't think it's The Sims yet, but maybe it's The Sims. Doesn't matter. He immediately and fervently believes that this is going to be a big product because he believes in Will Wright. He recommends, yes, we must buy this company, and not only must we buy this company, but we must give Will Wright everything he needs to complete his product. So Electronic Arts buys Maxis. Luke Barthelet is installed as the general manager of Maxis, and Luke Barthelet immediately opens the tap and gives Will Wright everything he needs, manpower, technology, resources, etc., to finish this product that at some point in here comes to be called The Sims. It is somewhere in here that Will Wright has his final important epiphany on how to market this game, because this is a game that everyone is saying nobody wants. Yes, Luke Barthelay has faith in him, but in general, people are saying nobody wants this. I mean, they've done focus groups. It's not just empty suits or clueless marketing executives that are saying nobody wants this. They took a version of this to the public, and the public said no thank you. It's right in this period, the little game called Quake 2 is released at the very end of 1997. How does a first-person shooter even tie into this? We got John (laughs) Carmack out here with his 3D shoot-everything game, and we have The Sim. Home, life, domestication, (laughs) a little bit of weirdness, a little bit of quirky, there might be some whoopee. We don't know what's going on anymore, but (laughs) it's just fun. There's definitely some feces on the floor. (laughs) Sims living like animals, letting their feces fall where they may. That's why we put the toilet in the corner. (laughs) Bonus points if you get that reference. Yes, they have nothing in common gameplay-wise. And obviously, Will Wright doesn't take anything from them gameplay-wise. He's not like, you know what would make The Sims desirable to everybody? Filling the house with Lovecraftian horrors! You as the player running around with various kinds of rocket launchers. Yes, rocket jumps! That's what The Sims needs, rocket jumps! New top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is rocket jumps. No, obviously he's not taking any gameplay elements from Quake 2, and he's not taking technology from Quake 2 either, because it is this, you know, fully 3D first-person shooter. But there is one thing that he is incredibly inspired by, and that is the community around Quake 2. It started a little bit with Quake, but really with Quake 2 is where a lot of this big community around first-person shooters starts. Big modding communities, big deathmatch communities, early esports, clans forming to compete with each other in deathmatches. Did a little bit of that happen in Doom or in Quake? Sure, a little bit did. But in Doom, it happened almost by accident. It took everyone by surprise. By Quake 2... Id is deliberately cultivating this. So there's a big community around Quake, and John Carmack communicates with this community constantly. This was a big part of what made Quake 2 successful as a product, was the way they could build a community around it. Not just of players, but also of modders. Will Wright has the idea of, let's do this with our game. We've got this brilliant, and it is kind of brilliant, pheromone system. 
because of the pheromone system, where individual objects just, no matter what they're designed to do, like in terms of their real-life function, can be boiled down to satisfying one of these eight needs. And since the Sims, the people, are programmed to respond in specific ways to these eight types of pheromones, you can put any objects in the game you want, and they will automatically work. You can just drop anything in, and no matter what it is, the Sims will know what to do with it. Because at the end of the day, even if you have hundreds of objects, they'll still be defined by these eight basic needs and wants. We can have a modding community. We can create an object designer so people can create their own household objects, drop them right in the game, and they will work right out of the box, just like the objects that ship with the game, because it's boiled down to these very simple parameters. So they decided, we'll have an object creator. We'll cultivate a modding community. And then they decided that they needed to get, and Barthelay was involved in this too. It wasn't just Will Wright. Luke Barthelay was involved in this too. We'll get the community excited about the game before it comes out. We'll start fostering a community in the same way that John Carmack would build excitement for its products through his direct outreach to his fan base. His so-called plan files, his dot plan files that he would release to the public and would give them an idea of what id is working on. This sounds very akin to just building a community of rabid fans who are going to be champions for your game, ambassadors for your game, and get other people to get on board. You're like, hey, look at this. This game's really cool. I can build an entire house, a family. I can make a toilet with sharks with lasers on their heads. And it's awesome (laughs) because every time you flush the toilet, it shoots a laser beam at the door. They were ahead of their time. They did live streams on 1999 internet. I mean, the frame rate of these things was terrible. They did live streams. They did demos. Luke Barthelay and Will Wright did demos of the game online to the public to showcase what they were doing. They were doing Let's Play videos well before anyone had the idea of what that was. They were being social media influencers in a time when nobody knew what that was. And yeah, the video updated at the rate of a couple frames a second or whatever. I mean, it was dog slow, but that wasn't the point because it's not like The Sims is a high-flying action game anyway. It's not like it's Quake 2. So they started showing people how the game was going to work well before it was released. Then they took an extra year to work on the game. Will Wright has said it probably would have been ready in 1999 in terms of being feature complete, but then they decided that they wanted to put all these community tools and these modding tools in, so it took them a whole nother year to add that extra layer on. So they started building excitement through live streams and Q&As, live Q&As. Then they released the modding tool ahead of the release of the game. Just put it out there in the world and let people start going hog wild with their own creations before the game was released, building that anticipation again. Finally, on or about, because who knows sometimes how accurate release dates are, on or about February 4th, 2000, they released The Sims Into the Wild. Even by 2000, there were very few computer games that had been truly massive successes compared to console games. We're in a period of time now where this has started to change some. Doom, of course, was a cultural phenomenon. 
Windows 95 had come along by this time, which made it a heck of a lot easier for the average user to get a darn computer game to load. No more messing with autoexecbat and config sys and memory managers and boot disks. But computers were still objects that were somewhat intimidating to a lot of the general public, even though that was slowly changing in this time period. Piracy was still a thing. Piracy has always inhibited computer game sales to some degree or another. The exact impact, who knows, but there is an impact. Only the biggest of the big games managed to sell even a million copies in the 90s. And only a really, really few games sold multiple millions of copies. Even most of those games were helped along by outside factors that weren't just about their popularity and how many people actually played them. The best example of that is what, at the time of The Sims' release, was the best-selling computer game of all time, Myst. Far and away the best-selling of all time, with about 6 million copies sold. But we have to understand, then, remember that early CD-ROM games, like Myst, were really helped by OEM bundling because the manufacturers of CD-ROM drives leaned very heavily on the latest and greatest in CD-ROM games to try to entice people to buy their systems. I know I did, and I, I imagine you did too. We all, at some point in the 90s, when we upgraded to a new computer or bought a new CD-ROM drive for our computer, got something that came with a bundle of games. When we upgraded to our 90 megahertz Pentium, we got a, a LucasArts game pack, which was CD-ROM versions of Rebel Assault, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, and Day of the Tentacle. I know our friend John Lewis, who was one of the first of us to get a CD-ROM upgrade for their computer when he got one. That came with a package that had Dune, not Dune 2, but the adventure game Dune and Fate of Atlantis. And uh, I want to say his came with Rebel Assault as well, but his wasn't just a LucasArts one like mine was because it had Dune in it. A lot of the early CD-ROM games racked up a lot of their sales through this OEM bundling. So Myst sold 6 million units, but a lot of that was bundling. And a lot of people, even that didn't get in bundles, went out and bought Myst because they had a new CD-ROM drive. And they were like, I need something to show off my CD-ROM drive. And I've heard about this gorgeous thing, Myst. I'll go get Myst. So they would buy Myst or it would come bundled with their CD-ROM drive. And they'd maybe put it in once and never play it again. Mist was popular. I'm not trying to say Mist was a failure, but Mist wasn't actually as popular as its six million in sales would lead you to believe, because a lot of that was drive-by purchases by people who were not actually very serious about games and didn't actually play the darn thing. It sat on a lot of shelves unloved. But that was the best-selling computer game of all time at that point, as far as we know. And even though we don't have complete numbers for everything in existence with computer games, it's probably true. It's hard to believe that another game that was, uh, you know, a computer game sold that many copies. You were still looking at sales in the hundreds of thousands. 100,000 by the late 2000s was a little low at this point. But you were still looking at sales in the hundreds of thousands of being pretty darn successful. You were looking at sales of a million being a blockbuster. 
you were looking at sales of $2 million being an out-of-this-world blockbuster. Then you had Mist way off in its own little la-la land, just lapping the field with everybody. In its first year on the market, The Sims sold 1.77 million units and was the best-selling computer game in the United States. In 2001, it sold an additional 1.48 million units, bringing its total sales to 3.25 million units. It was once again the best-selling computer game in the United States. In 2002, The Sims reached sales, total sales, not additional sales to what I already said, but total sales of 6.3 million units and dethroned Myst as the best-selling computer game of all time. By 2005, worldwide sales had reached 16 million units. So I'm guessing all those people who said, no one will ever buy this game ever, were wrong. They were, and the reason for it is is they didn't understand that this was going to cross demographics like nothing ever before. There was something about controlling these little lives, whether as a benevolent god or a dark and vengeful god, (laughs) and believe me, people did both, that just struck at the core of the human condition. What would happen is it would go viral because, you know, they were trying to cultivate some of these gaming communities even before the game launched. But what would happen is your typical computer gamer would buy the game because it's the latest Will Wright game or he saw one of the live streams and thought it looked cool or whatever and would buy the game. Their wife or their sister or their older brother who had never cared about all of this silly game stuff would see the game being played. They would be like, oh, that's really cool. And then they would go in and get the game. It just spread virally across all ages, all demographics. It was universally addictive. It reached a lot of people that were not traditional game players, some of which really didn't play any other games except The Sims. The Sims didn't turn them into game players. It just turned them into Sims players. Then, when they realized what a good thing they had, they created one of the prototypes, almost, of the games-as-service model. Now, it it wasn't a games-as-service model, because you would go out and buy The Sims, and you owned The Sims, and you could always play The Sims forever and ever, until it just didn't run on modern computers anymore or whatever. They didn't turn it into a games-as-service, but when they realized that there were people that would play nothing but The Sims, they realized, we've got a long tail here. This isn't going to be the typical gamer that plays this game for three months, four months, six months, and then goes and buys the next game. These are people that don't play any other games. This has become one of their hobbies, one of their pastimes. So let's release a really regular cadence of expansions. Expansions were a thing in games at this point, of course. But generally speaking, a game, not counting like an online game or whatever, like Ultima Online, which exists at this point, but generally speaking, a game would get one, maybe two expansions, and that was it. Because at the end of the day, your gamer is going to move on. I mean, he might like the game enough that he'll stick around for one expansion. If it's a really popular game, maybe even two expansions. 
If it's a dumb expansion like Hellfire, maybe zero expansions, but whatever. Didn't happen anyway. We already covered this. You stopped there because your gamer was going to want the next big thing. They would want the next big shiny with the better engine, with the better graphics, with the better sound, with the better gameplay. But these were not traditional gamers. These were people that were just fascinated by building homes for these little people and seeing how they reacted to the objects placed in front of them and how they reacted with each other and all of this stuff. So they're like, we can just keep releasing expansion after expansion after expansion, and our people will keep buying them because they're not moving on to the next big game. They're just playing our game. Thus, you have things like the Umbrella Pack, the Pet Pack, the Summer Vacation Pack. Right. So they released six expansions for this game between 2000 and 2003. That was unheard of. That was insane. But it worked for The Sims because they had all of these non-traditional gamers. It broke through in the mainstream. That's why it had sales. It broke through the mainstream. I imagine, and I don't know this, this is speculation, but I imagine it was less affected by piracy than some games because, of course, these non-gamers that are getting into this, they're not going to have the wherewithal to go pirate it. They're all going to go out and buy it. It became a mainstream hit. It was not affected by a lot of the same forces that affect a lot of other games, and so it just kept selling and selling and selling, and then they released expansions, and the expansion releases keep the product in the front of people's minds, so then more people are introduced to the game. Obviously, the existing user base is buying the expansions, but more people discover the game as the expansions come out, and there's more buzz around that, and so it just snowballs, and people keep buying and buying and buying. Of course, you know, the franchise continues today. I mean, they eventually did Sims 2 and Sims 3, and they're huge successes and everything. But that's Max's EA history again. That's not Will Wright history, because Will Wright doesn't do sequels. Will Wright has this incredible success, the most successful computer game of all time. He's managed to top himself. Most people making a Sim City is the pinnacle of their career. Even if they have other successful games, they only get one landmark game. Having two landmark games, that puts our man Will Wright in Miyamoto territory. Because he doesn't just have two massive hits, he has two landmark games. Two games that redefined the industry. So what does perhaps the most successful computer game designer in history, arguably, I'm not saying he necessarily is, but certainly near the top, if not the top, what does he do to follow that up? The answer is sim everything. It's not sim a city. That's not Sim a planet. That's not The Sims a house. Let's Sim everything. The most ambitious idea from the most ambitious game designer in all of computer games. Interestingly enough, this time he is not inspired by a book he read or by a theorist who outlined a system. This time he is inspired by slightly different things. Now, Will Wright has always been interested in space. Ever since he was a kid, when his father was still alive, who died, uh, we may recall, when he was young, when his father was still alive, they would sit under the stars, look up at the heavens, and dream about what NASA was trying to accomplish there in the 1960s about sending people into space. Remember, Will Wright wanted to be an astronaut visiting other worlds. When he met the person who became his wife, they had a bit of a disconnect, even though they ended up falling in love because she was big into dealing with the problems on the planet Earth, and Will Wright just wanted to go to the stars. 
He's always been interested in that. But in this period, he's getting interested in other concepts to do with space and whether there might be other life in space. So he becomes interested in panspermia theory. The idea that certain elements that were necessary for the creation of life were spread by space dust. You know, they weren't native to Earth, that they were spread by interstellar objects and may have been spread by interstellar objects, not just onto Earth, but also to maybe other planets out there as well. As a corollary of that, he became very interested in the Drake equation. This was not written in a book. I mean, he's still interested in theories, but for once, he's not going to books of systems like he did with Jay Forrester and Urban Dynamics and Christopher Alexander and Pattern Theory. He becomes very interested in the Drake Equation, which was formulated in 1961 by Frank Drake, an astrophysicist, an astrobiologist, who tried to calculate mathematically how many planets out there in the universe could possibly be inhabited by intelligent life like ours. Again, it's not a perfect and fully accepted equation, but it's it's an equation that fascinated Will Wright. It's not about what's true or what's 100% accurate. It's about what inspired Will Wright. Then on top of that, he was very interested in a 1977 short film called Powers of Ten. Now, I know you're aware of this, even if you don't realize you're aware of this, because they had this at the Science Center when we were kids, Jeffrey. We have seen this, and I know you've seen it, even if you don't remember it. The Powers of Ten centers on—well, we didn't know it was called the Powers of Ten, but you may recognize the description. It focuses on a couple in a field, and then it starts zooming out at Powers of Ten. So you get further and further away, and you can see the surrounding countryside, and then you can see the surrounding continent, and then you can see the planet, and then you can see the solar system, and then you can see the cosmos, and it keeps zooming out at Powers of Ten. Then it reverses and starts zooming in at powers of 10. So it goes back to our couple in the field, but then it zooms in on one of them and we start seeing inside the body and we take it all the way down to the cellular and even microcellular level. So it's this short film that in this period of time, by expanding and tracting in powers of 10, gives you a view of the whole universe from the tiniest cellular structures to the entire galaxy. So I don't know if you remember that or not, but it, it, I, I remember it very well from the Science Center in St. Louis when we were kids. I don't remember it, but I've been able to pull up a video of it and just scan through it. Yeah, I've seen things like this, sort of a homages of, in various cartoons, in other scientific explanations. It's a good way of expressing large quantities that human minds cannot really comprehend very well in a fashion that is relatable. Mm-hmm. With the combination of these ideas, thinking about life on other planets, how life evolves, and how you can zoom in at this very detailed cellular level and zoom all the way out to this galactic level, he came up with the idea of of what in the prototype stage he called Sam Everything, and what, of course, was eventually released to the public as Spore. The idea of Spore was that you would take a life form through multiple stages. The number of stages changed several times in development and included stages that were eventually removed. But by the time the game was released in 2008, there were five stages. You would start at the cellular stage, where simple microbes would form. 
then move on to the creature stage where you evolve this bizarre creature. Then they would evolve into intelligent life and you would do the tribal stage, then the civilization stage, and finally the space stage where you're going out into the universe and colonizing and all of this stuff. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. And really, this is the point where Will Wright's ingenuity fails him. Maybe, and this is a big maybe, I'm not saying it's true, maybe in a simpler time, you could get away with creating a collection of mini-games that simulated all of these various stages. Just like you have a game like Sid Meier's Pirates, which doesn't take place in stages, but there are a bunch of little different pirate activities that you can do in Sid Meier's Pirates that together make up the larger experience of playing Sid Meier's Pirates. Maybe in a simpler day you could get away with that. But in the early 2000s, you're not talking about making a series of minigames. You're you're basically talking about making five games. Five full games with completely different rule sets, completely different actions, completely different objectives, and shoehorning them together. Will Wright thought he could make a lot of this work by using procedural generation, something else he was getting very interested in at this time. But at the end of the day, he was trying to make five games at once. He had a large team. He had the full support of Maxis. I mean, Luke Barthelay always had faith in him, and that was even before The Sims became the best-selling computer game of all time. So he had all the resources he could want. He had all the people he could need. That in itself kind of revealed the other problem and kind of revealed the limitations of Will Wright Game Designer. Will Wright Game Designer's strength was becoming really fascinated by a system and then creating a game not entirely by himself, but with a very small group of people that he could keep in sync and keep control of, create a game that modeled that system in an interesting way. That's how all of his big hits were created. That's how his big failures were created, too. Everything but Bungling Bay, his very first game, was basically created using this kind of method. First of all, he didn't start with a system in this sense. I mean, that was probably the first kind of deviation from the successful Will Wright formula. He was still inspired by things that he was engaging with or interacting with at the time, but he was inspired by a mathematical equation and a short film. He wasn't inspired by a system. So he was going to have to build all of the systems himself from scratch, and they were going to have to build five systems instead of one system. So already I think he's at a disadvantage because he's not starting from a theory that he's trying to put into game form. Second of all, Will Wright is not, in fact, a people manager. The team is huge, dozens of people. It's gotten too big. He can't really control it. There are fissures on the team. There are people with different visions of what this should be. There were many different fractures, but one of the main fractures was the division between the cute people and the science people. The people that wanted this to be a cute, goofy game with animated, funny-looking aliens doing animated, funny-looking things. Then the people that wanted to go real hard science and make it as realistic as possible. There was a clash between these camps and between other camps as well. This is just the big one that's mostly talked about. Will Wright was not the people manager that could enforce his will on a team. He wanted to really manage by consensus. Since there was no consensus, that meant making a lot of compromises and splitting the baby, so to speak, between various factions. So there wasn't a uniform focus all pulling in one direction. They did endless prototyping. 
prototyping had been something that Will Wright had used to great success before. I mean, SimCity spent years being developed before it was finally released. The Sims spent years being developed before it was released, and there was a lot of prototyping. But in this case, they did prototype after prototype after prototype. But these were large teams working with early 2000s technology, so game development was just bigger at this time. So they'd do a prototype. They'd maybe find one or two things that they liked in that prototype, but then they'd scratch most of the rest. They wasted a lot of time building prototypes that they never really used and just doing that over and over and over again, which is something that didn't really make sense in a modern game development context. I mean, you can iterate, sure, in a modern context, but you can't just keep scrapping over and over and over again. It just takes too long to do anything anymore. You lose too much time. You lose too much opportunity to perfect. So they never found the fun. He was never really able to wrangle the team. The team was divided in purpose. At the end of the day, they released a game that was very, very shallow. There was no depth to any of the modes. I remember the hype for this game. Yeah, the hype was out of this world. Just like with The Sims, where they released the modding tools in advance, they released the creature editor in advance for Spore. There was a period of time where Spore went really viral because people were making all of these wacky aliens and sharing them, and people were getting excited about it. This is the guy who created The Sims and SimCity. He's a superstar. This game's going to be big. He had the marketing muscle of EA behind him, and EA was telling everyone this game was going to be big. The hype for the game was massive, and it was never going to live up to the hype. No matter how good it was, it would have never lived up to the hype. But it's worse than that because, of course, it, it, it wasn't even that good. It was too shallow. You can tell, I mean, one of the philosophical breakdowns is Will Wright, his most excited about the space stage. That was the big thing that inspired him. So kind of his idea is that the space stage would be the main stage. So, I mean, he's building five games in one, but he doesn't even care about four of them. There were other games along the way that they abandoned. There was going to be a city stage, like good old Sim City, and they abandoned that. There were going to be other stages. So they threw away stages, too. If you're creating five games in one, but you don't even care about four of those games, I mean, how's that going to hold together? But it's not like the space game's any better, because they're dividing their attention amongst five games. It was shallow. So people were very hyped in advance, and had a lot of fun building their creatures, and then they bought the game, and then they played the game, and they were like, oh, there's no there there. So it was basically a failure. It kind of punctured the legend of Will Wright. He's been kind of aimless since, quite frankly. He divorced his wife right about the time that Spore came out. He has since remarried, but you know he divorced his wife, Joelle Jones. He left Maxis in 2009. He created his own incubator called Stupid Fun Club that was designed to kind of just allow him to pursue his own interests wherever they may go. They created this TV show called Bar Karma that was based on people basically using a tool called Storymaker that Stupid Fun Club created to create their own little interactive narratives. Then they would, I guess, be aired on this show. Didn't really do very well. Stupid Fun Club lasted for four years. Then 2021, he announced a new project that was going to be all about the blockchain of all things. I think we're still waiting on that one to come out. Of course, the blockchain and NFTs have taken a lot of flack. I don't know what's going to go on with that, but I mean, he he just hasn't 
he just kind of petered out. And, you know, I'm not going to try to go too much into that. But I just think the game industry probably moved on from someone like Will Wright. I mean, he's he's incredibly brilliant. There's no doubting the amazing things he's done. And I'm not denigrating him in any way. But I'm not sure that that singular individual that is driven to seek what excites him personally is necessarily well-suited to uh, surviving in the modern environment. I mean, yes, you can have, I mean, yes, there's an indie games movement out there, but that's kind of different because Will Wright isn't really driven by being a game designer. He's really driven by systems and interesting systems and then giving life to those systems. I don't know that that kind of creation is possible anymore in this day and age without large teams. I don't know that Will Wright is suited to conveying his vision through the work of a large team. I think Spore just kind of showed that we had reached kind of the limits of what Will Wright could achieve in the game space, and he hasn't really achieved much since. None of that diminishes his incredible intelligence or uh, the great games he's done. It's just, you know, Spore kind of represents the end of Will Wright game designer. But like I said, most people would kill to have one landmark game under their belts, and, and Will Wright has two. So I don't think anyone can be unhappy with the way the career of one Mr. Will Wright turned out. Well, he certainly has led to the loss of many a gaming hour for myself and Alex. So we thank you for that one. <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Not to mention, if we ever do this Maxis episode, we're going to have to go in with all the ports of SimCity and a lot of the other games and just go into the craziness of that. Right. A lot of that, of course, as we said, you know, most of that wasn't created by Will Wright himself, but certainly his success with SimCity is what set the tone for all of that other stuff that happened as well. Well, I guess that just leaves one last thing on this epically long two-part episode on Will Wright. That is, who do we talk about next time? Or what do we talk about next time? Or where do we talk about next time? Yes, I think it's more of a what than a who. Uh, I think it's time to return to one of our favorite subjects, and one that I know our audience likes as well, which is Sega Enterprises, that great Japanese video game company. I swear, all of you people love Sega so much that any of our Sega episodes is, by and large, the higher level of, ooh, we must download this. That's right, and we're a soulless corporation now, or at least a soulless limited liability company, which means that, you know, we have to pander to what the people want. We're going to take another examination of Sega history, uh, but we're going to look at it through a slightly different lens. We're going to discuss the history of Sega in relation to its parent company from 1984 to 2004, CSK Corporation. We've done history episodes of Sega before, and we've covered this period of time in Sega history before. But other than mentioning that CSK bought them and owned them, we didn't really talk about the ways in which CSK influenced the direction that Sega took. I've gotten into some new Japanese sources, new interviews and whatnot, that have given me some new insights into exactly how that interplay between those two companies played into that history, the reasons that CSK was very interested in being involved with Sega in the beginning, the reasons that CSK was very disinterested in being involved with Sega at the end, and some of the ways CSK's objectives shaped the way Sega operated. So taking a, a fresh look at Sega in this period, 1984 to 2004, through the lens of its parent company, CSK. CSK and Sega, next time on They Create World. 
check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we discussed in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. You can also help by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollo Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. After all that editing, I have to use the sandbox.